This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 23rd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today we published a study that covers an area we've discussed before, the efficacy of boosters to protect against infection. And I'd like to talk about the results of that study, but I'm sure listeners are thinking, haven't we heard all this before? So let's also talk about how we think about what we choose to publish now that we're more than two years into this ongoing pandemic. But first, the new study. It comes to us from the manufacturers of BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, and their academic collaborators. So what was different about this study from those we've published in the past? This is a randomized controlled trial. That makes it different from the largely real-world studies we've discussed recently. The investigators selected more than 10,000 participants from their original registration trial and randomized them to receive either an additional dose of vaccine or placebo at least six months after they'd completed their initial vaccine series. Because the sponsor anticipated that the additional dose would be approved, the study was unblinded to allow placebo recipients to elect to receive active vaccine if they wished. This meant that the data on some of the participants were censored prior to the planned two-month efficacy time point. The booster appeared to be safe with the usual array of local and systemic reactogenic side effects, which generally resolved in a few days. There were only a handful of serious adverse events, a similar number in the two arms, and the vaccine was highly efficacious. Through the end of the follow-up period, there were seven COVID-19 cases in the vaccine group and 124 in the placebo group, a vaccine efficacy of about 95%. Importantly, this study was performed before the start of the Omicron outbreak. There were only two cases of severe disease, both among the placebo recipients. So, Eric, these types of data we like because they're based on a randomized controlled trial design and therefore minimize some of the uncertainties that we see in real world data when individuals select if they're vaccinated early or late. So in that sense, it adds to our understanding and confidence in the value of boosters. But as you point out, this was during the Delta surge, there just a couple of months of follow-up, and the booster recommendation came out during the trial before these data were even available. So on the one hand, it is incremental in what we learn. On the other hand, these are some of the highest quality data in the space about what boosters can offer, given that it was in a randomized controlled trial frame thus minimizing some of the biases associated with other types of design. So despite what you say, Lindsay, didn't we already know this? Let's turn to the general thinking that we have when it comes to publishing during the COVID-19 outbreak. What rises to the level of publishable material, publishable data? I think our publishing philosophy hasn't changed all that much during COVID-19. Our goal is always the same. It's to get information to caregivers that can either help them manage their patients today or help them think about what might be available in the future. But there have been differences during the outbreak. First, and we've talked about this before, there's a speed with which we have to get information out. Since some of what we publish informs decisions that will be made immediately, it's really important to get that kind of data out as quickly as possible. I'm pretty comfortable that we've been able to pull that off, though it's meant many nights and weekends for our editors and editorial staff. But because that process can involve several rounds of revision and a back and forth exchange with the authors, even after we've made the decision to publish, we can't really control when the article will be ready to come out. 
that process can take days, weeks, or in some cases, months. So sometimes research can come out long after it's completed. And it means that some data can come out asynchronously with later stage studies sometimes appearing before early ones. So Eric, you touch on some very important points. The issue of speed and the importance of information to make decisions relative to the patient in front of me today. And the process to get there not only requires rigor and speed on the editorial side and the manuscript editors, but also on the authors and the reviewers. And the amount that is asked of everyone in this process to do in an accelerated time period is tremendous and greatly appreciated. You also infer what it means for a study to be completed. Or really, I think what you're getting at is the issue of a quantum of information that is useful to the community, be it researchers, clinicians, educators, academics, regulators. And I think that is one of the most treacherous elements that we've had to deal with as a community over the last two years. What amount of information has a high enough credibility to be informative to our thinking? What we define as a study being completed is so different today than two years ago. We are publishing interim results of trials routinely, as are other journals, because study endpoints get achieved at the first interim analysis. And therefore, both the study team, their DSMB, their funders, as well as the community like us are judging and assessing how complete are the data, the efficacy endpoint, how well understood, the safety database, how complete, the study protocol not exactly followed as the study hasn't gone to its two-year endpoint. It stopped at six months because of a signal of importance. So I think it's been a tremendous challenge for us as a journal, for the scientific community, and for our readers to digest information that are partial in nature, but urgent to share and understand and to implement in practice. I think that's right, Lindsay. We're asking a lot of everyone through the process, including, I should say, our readers, because the amount of information being presented is just enormous. But we do ask a lot of both our staff and reviewers and authors because we want to remain as rigorous as we always are through the process of editing. And we want to put the information in the most accessible way we can for our readers. And that takes some work. It takes some work by everyone. I think that we've done a pretty good job of it. I know I'm giving ourselves a lot of credit here, and, and that may not be fair, and others may disagree. But we've tried, at least, to maintain the same standards with the rapidly produced data that we do with anything else we publish. And that takes work, and it sometimes takes a while. So Eric, I agree. I think we've maintained our same standards. I think the complexity are that the data are incomplete when presented early. When a study is presented months, if not years, before the plan ending and the traditional analyses that go on, the data are incomplete. However, that does not mean they are not incredibly important and useful and can change practice. And the role that we in medical publishing and at the journal play, but the role across the community has been transformative over the last two years. And I do think it's something we as a community will reflect on 
as we look at how do we communicate and how do we balance the perfect, complete study at its planned endpoint two years from now versus incremental data six months from now that can change practice. And that's in a traditional RCT as opposed to observational data where we continually reevaluate when an aliquot of information is complete enough to inform practice. I think it's been good and healthy for the community. It's been incredibly challenging and at times confusing because studies often conflict with each other in terms of the findings. For example, using agents late in COVID versus early in COVID. The fact that the agent worked in one setting and not the other doesn't mean the first study is wrong. It means we learned along the way and we had incomplete, but the best data available in real time. So I think it's something that publishing, but also the community of practitioners and investigators will be continually reevaluating as we are able to share information faster to the best of the community's ability, but still early compared to our traditional way of publishing complete data sets. What else has changed during COVID? Lindsay just alluded to the fact that we publish different kinds of information. And because this was a rapidly moving area and we wanted to get out information into what was really a vacuum, we did publish the kinds of things that we don't publish as commonly. You know, given the choice, we generally wait until the highest quality of evidence is available. And for many questions, that means randomized controlled trials. However, at the beginning of the epidemic, we decided to publish several observational trials. These provided answers that might not have held up when subsequent randomized controlled trials were performed, but they were the highest quality evidence at the time. And we felt that having some information was better than not knowing anything. However, over the course of the epidemic, our standards have changed. When randomized controlled trials became available, these became our new standard. It's still true, though, that not every question can be answered by a randomized controlled trial, both with COVID and with other types of questions. So we will continue to publish a variety of trials, both in the COVID space and outside of it. So, Eric, I think that, as you note, what data and information were available early on in the pandemic were intrinsically limited based upon what was happening with the pandemic, where it occurred, the initial treatment, and we reflected that. It is gratifying to see higher quality studies occurring more rapidly due to innovations in study design, speed of publishing, and also a broader acceptance among the community, I hope, of participating in clinical trials to advance knowledge. So despite the chaos and challenges of the research endeavor to improve how we care for patients over the last two years, I am hopeful that we have learned a lot about how to do it better and how to do it faster along all of the steps in the process. And what I would like to see is not that research subsequently post-pandemic goes back to the speed of how we did it previously, but rather we learn how to speed up investigation for all diseases because our patients who have diseases that we don't have a treatment for that have substantial morbidity need solutions today. And I hope that we as a research community across all of its domains, including the volunteers who participate, as well as how the studies are set up, learn how to speed up and accelerate the process to advance knowledge.
So despite the incredible crisis over the last two years, I am hopeful that the process of generating medical knowledge and sharing it will substantially speed up as that is what we need to do for our patients. Lindsay, you allude to something that we've discussed before, and that's an important point. Early on, as I said, we published observational studies, epidemiologic studies, even case reports to try to acquaint our readers with what was going on out there, particularly very early before many people had seen the disease. But it took a very long time for us to get to the first randomized controlled trials, much longer than it should have. So I think an important lesson here is that we should be generating the highest quality information as early as possible during an outbreak of this sort. And hopefully, if there is a next time, we'll have learned some lessons. So Eric, I'd push a little harder than that. I think we need to speed up the pace of research, not just in response to pandemic, but in response to the diseases our patients face. We shouldn't cut corners. We shouldn't be sloppy, but I think that we need to be cautious to accept a slow pace in solving the problems our patients have. And that's where I really hope that what we've learned over the last two years of how to do it faster gets applied to medical research in general beyond just our pandemic response. I realize that we keep our deliberations confidential, but in general, what was it about the type of study we discussed earlier, the booster study, that led to our decision to publish it? Well, as you said earlier, we've published quite a bit of data about boosters, including more updated information about the waning of immunity after a third dose, and even early studies of a fourth dose of vaccine. But as Lindsay said earlier, these were all real-world studies. Many of them were quite large, and since they're real-world, they might reflect how well vaccination will work when we actually apply these vaccines. They also give a reasonable idea of efficacy. However, because of the biases inherent in the design of such studies, they're less accurate than randomized controlled trials, both for efficacy and particularly for estimating the rates of adverse events. These can be very important for setting policies that rely on very good measures of risk and benefit. So Steve, I think that Though we know that boosters work, or we think we know that, having more lines of evidence, particularly the highest quality type evidence, provides greater reassurance that we got it right. And these data in the context of an RCT, as Eric, you allude to, minimize many of the biases that are associated with real world data. And to see that the findings are similar to the real world data provides increased confidence that we have it right, that boosters add value. And then we need to sort out how much value. And different populations may derive different benefits or have different side effects. So these types of data provide different sides of the elephant for us to understand how much value this intervention may add to our clinical repertoire. I really focus on the adverse event side. Now, randomized controlled trials are relatively small as compared to some of the real-world studies, and the real-world studies are extremely important for picking up very rare side effects. That was the case with such things as myocarditis. However, within randomized controlled trials, we can get an idea of the risk of common side effects, 
Now, certainly we can characterize the reactogenic side effects, the ones which occur right after vaccination, both local and systemic, much more easily in a randomized controlled trial than we can by doing surveys of people who got vaccines. We have a good idea of these and they're not so severe. But let's take a side effect that could happen relatively commonly in certain populations. For example, if you were to look at elderly individuals, their risk of a myocardial infarction is reasonable over time. And the question is, do these MIs occur more frequently after vaccination than in unvaccinated individuals? Well, population level data, which have been used in real world studies, are not as useful for looking for something like this as a large enough randomized controlled trial. And so we can get an idea of some important but fairly common events and determine whether they are linked to vaccination or not. So Eric, I think that how best to identify side effects associated with an intervention. And RCT is a much better way to identify that. However, as you point out, it really depends on the frequency of the event. So a rule of thumb is you need about three times the number of enrollees receiving the treatment to begin to see an event that might be relevant. So a 30,000 person study might be able to see a one in 10,000 event. So that this is a very helpful way to identify, you know, uncommon but not rare side effects in a much better way than real world data, because as you point out, real world data are confounded by background rates and how to differentiate background rates from individuals who choose an intervention earlier than those who don't. Therefore, there's a non-random element in access to the treatment gets very complicated. So I do agree that the ability to detect common side effects and not so common side effects, the RCT may be a little cleaner. For rare events, it's going to be population-wide data as we've seen. Given that there's now been extensive exploration of the effects of the existing vaccines, what do you think we'll be publishing in the future? I don't really know, and I'm excited to find out what we might get. I can think of a few areas that we know will be explored that we're hopefully going to see progress in. One, of course, is in new vaccines. And these could be new vaccines with new properties or new vaccines that are much more widely available so that the many people in the world who have not been vaccinated can finally get some protection. In addition, if new vaccines are able to protect against new variants of disease, that would be very important information. We've published on therapies. There are a few types of effective therapies out there. They all have their drawbacks. It would be great to see new therapies that were widely available, that were inexpensive, hopefully, and that might get around a future problem which we're likely to face, which is viral resistance. And then finally, I hope that we continue to see innovations in the public health space where new interventions and new policies might be able to limit the transmission of disease in a way that is broadly acceptable so that they can be implemented. Absolutely, Eric. There are so many potential spaces where we need more knowledge, as you allude to in improving immunity, responding to variants, how to improve population level health. I think additional areas, what are the consequences of COVID? And this gets to our earlier conversation, Eric, where at what point are data complete? If 
consequences occur six months later and Omicron is 130 days old, then nobody on the planet knows what the consequences of Omicron are, let alone some of the consequences of earlier variants. So I think there's a lot to be learned and understood as we try to dissect out how COVID has affected health. And then the issue of equity, which is one where we still as a community have not done nearly enough, both locally and globally. And so I think there are many areas, Steve, where there's a lot of opportunity to improve the discussion, understand the biology, and disseminate better ways to improve health. I'd say that we're really looking forward to these things. I mean, I don't want to make editors out to be boring, but what excites us are new and exciting findings. So we are excited looking forward. I'm very optimistic that we're going to have a lot more tools that will allow us to address some of the issues that both Lindsay and I have discussed. So I think we're going to be getting a lot more, but the pace may be a little slower than it's been in the past. So for podcast listeners, I think there is still more to look forward to. I agree, Eric. I think there's a lot more that we will learn. And I really look forward to our learning a lot more about all the other diseases that have not gotten the attention they deserve beyond COVID. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.